0: My name is Eduardo, and this is the Beyond Best podcast. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Balax, engineer, serial entrepreneur startup mentor. Balax shared his knowledge on how to look for co-founders and some of the key questions one ought to keep in mind in order to launch a successful startup.
1: People who go to these startup weekends or other startup events... They usually say that it's very hard to find, you know, good co-founders that they can match uh, what you mentioned before with expertise, with a different point of view and so on. And I was just wondering if you have kind of maybe some advice, piece of advice for future um, startup enthusiasts about what they could look for in a potential co-founders.
2: Well the good news is that there are a lot of good people out there but the bad news is that there is absolutely no way to for to know for sure in advance so and start working together and have vesting agreements in place from the beginning that is very important advice uh, from me to every uh current and potential startup founder, it's really, really important to talk about uh, these things in the beginning. Not in the very, very beginning, but uh, very early on. It's like, uh, who is going to own what percentage of the company? Who is going to be the formal leader of the company? Who is going to do what it's extremely important and i have seen a lot of teams now that i mentor a lot of startups that they haven't decided they are almost at the point where they would uh, found the company because there were investor interest and everything and they they don't know who is going to be the ceo and they are not they don't know how they are going to divide the equity and it's a big big mistake so the best thing is to have a verbal uh, sorry a written agreement between the co-found the possible the future co-founders between uh i don't know 2 3 or 4 or whatever private natural persons that okay we are going to uh, create a company that does that, this and this and this and this, and this. And uh, this person is going to be the formal uh, leader, the managing director or CEO or whatever. Yep. And uh, the percentages are going to look like this. And that's also extremely important, the vesting schedule. Uh, for those of you listening uh, and I don't know what vesting is, is that, uh, that you uh, don't get your shares immediately, but over a course of uh, time. Mm. which protects everyone involved, uh, for, uh, well, from people that are quitting the company early on and then, uh, staying with their shares, which is a red flag for investors actually. So, so mm-hmm. only those people sh- hold, should hold a significant amount of shares in a company that uh, are working actively in it. Yeah. And this is what vesting schedule is about. So, uh,
1: it's like a skin the game right it's of like course. the people yes. who stay and they do the work they they deserve to to reap the the rewards not people who just uh, are there for one month yeah they they're 20%. they're in the beginning
2: yes exactly usually like a good vesting schedule is like 3 years usually 3 to 4 years and uh, they get their ownership stake gradually So this is this is what uh, I always say that you should do. And having that in mind, you can start working together with anyone who complements your skills and it seems that you are getting along well. Because getting along well personally, that is a a really really important factor in startup success. So, but but actually, this these two two factors is that okay? You have uh, matching skill sets. Matching, I mean, one has skills that the other doesn't, and vice versa. Uh but you have matching skill sets, and also you seem to like each other as persons. That is enough to start very cautiously, but start a co-founder relationship.
1: Yeah, yeah. Can you, maybe, I'm not sure if there is a way to, there's a theory about shares, but I just wonder, based on your own experience so far, how can you get, how can you distribute the shares among founders and co-founders? Is it always the CEO gets the the biggest share or there is not such rule? How is it according to to your experience so far?
2: Yeah, um, it's... uh... Well, I could talk probably a whole podcast episode about this, but I'm going to try to <laughs> okay. make it uh, make, short. For another mm-hmm. one, then. <laughs> make it make it short. Please. Usually, it's uh, it's uh, best. It's a good signal that the formal leader, the CEO, has at least a little bit uh, more shares. If there are two co-founders and no investors yet it's advisable that they have uh, 51, 49% uh, shares so -hmm. that uh, they uh, can avoid a deadlock in case they are uh, not agreeing. And when they are uh, more people than like, for example, three people, then okay, CEO has one share more than the other two, but this is not the only factor because uh, everyone uh, has opportunity cost everyone puts something into the business and uh, this has to be compensated to avoid later disagreements and like bitter feelings and there is a model uh called uh, slicing pie you can put it in the show notes i think it's a really really interesting model there is mm-hmm. a book about it but the the most important uh, Uh, theory about that is that you take uh, into account how much work each co-founder has put into the the company up to this point and then uh, how much they are going to put into after this point how much money they might have invested in the into the company for example if it's possible that one co-founder uh, invested some of their savings into a company, it's possible. It's well, it's usual that uh, at least one of the co-founder puts some money into it so that they can actually, like you know, create a legal entity. And uh, but uh, the other very important factor is to to take. The opportunity cost of each founder into account this is how the pie slicer works, and there is a software um, that is uh, it's a freemium. you can try it for fourteen days and uh, divide your shares with it <laughs> so you can give how much, for example, if you were uh, working on the market. How much yeah. could you actually earn from the market? That's your opportunity cost by not working on the market. Or uh, that's your you know, hourly value. And everyone mm. is just uh, putting in their own hourly value. And then this uh, actually uh, solves the discrepancy when, for example, one founder uh, is, I'm not saying it's worth more, But uh, the market value of one founder is significantly larger than the other founder. Like, for example, one founder has uh, 15 years of experience. Like, for example, he he or she is a senior engineer and uh, um, could take home a boatload of money if they were working for a multinational company. And the other one is just, I'm not saying just, but... uh, is a student that uh, is very yeah. talented, but on the market, they could not earn that much yet. So uh, in this case, this factors in the opportunity cost of the founders and uh, adjusts uh, mm-hmm. to, this, to this value. And this is, well, I'm not saying this is scientifically the most accurate way to uh, justify how you could uh, share the shares, but it's a way that uh, people think it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an easy to agree on if a software says says so.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what you mentioned actually um, makes it more fair compared to just saying I'll get uh, 20%, you get 20% and the CEO is getting uh, 60%. At least there is some kind of a logic behind it based on the experience, the connections. I guess yes. the funds that uh, the founders are, yes. are investing exactly.
2: in. Exactly. And also if one founder uh, had wor- had been working on the project for a much longer time, then it factors all their working hours into it. So mm-hmm. it factors that, okay, for example, uh, one founder started this business a year ago and the other joined two months ago. Uh, it, it factors in those things, but also... As I told you, this is not an all-in-one solution, because when it's very early, it's usually, um, especially if the startup is going to be successful, the time in front of you is much longer than the time behind you. So, for example, one founder worked three months longer on the project than the other. It's going to be negligible if the company is like five years old. So you have to yeah. factor in uh, all these things on a case by case basis and have to go to an understanding to. Yeah. Yeah. All
1: right. yeah. Okay. It's interesting. I think that we should book you for, for another discussion about this <laughs> one, because at <laughs> least for me, this is quite interesting topic. <laughs> but okay. maybe not for
2: now. <laughs> okay, OK, next uh, time. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, but maybe maybe what I want to maybe want to try to switch gears a bit and, and We are talking about the details of, uh, you know, you have your business today, Yosify, but you also, but, but I, but I see that you also do a lot of mentoring for startups. Um, I'm kind of wondering, maybe if you, if you can tell us, you know, what exactly do you do for the mentoring in in the, in this, you know, in this mentoring process for startups? How do you, how do you guide them through to start a business and like, what do you what is what do you take from that experience uh what do you li- why do you like doing it and like what do you learn what do you learn and why you why do you do that basically and like can you share what what is your let's say what is your process how do you go through this um, mentoring
2: yeah okay um so what was the process of becoming a mentor yeah it's like uh, i believe being a mentor is something like uh, swimming is that you you have to just start it from going into the water to actually start swimming but then you draw <laughs> well um, <laughs> no. Uh, I, yeah, you you can you can drown, but uh, no, you 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 don't drown when you are mentoring people. But like, you don't know whether you you would be a good mentor until you have tried it. That's what I was trying to imply. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> You don't know. You might have been a successful entrepreneur or successful at whatever, because yeah, mentorship is not only uh, important in entrepreneurship, but in I believe in every profession that exists, and everyone can uh, benefit a lot from uh, mentorship. Not only startup entrepreneurs, but like uh, it. I believe it's not uh, enough to to be very good at one one's job or one's uh discipline but uh, yeah so that's why i believe it you have to you have to try yourself uh, well my my process was that uh, i was curious about this i have seen quite a lot in the startup world so why not help uh, people who are just starting the businesses um get along because there are some questions that are most probably obvious to me, and then for beginners it's not, so I believe I could create a lot of value by helping them. And uh, this is how it started, and I realized that I really love doing it. And I have done so
0: what, what the, like you say there are some, some nice, qu- some questions that you usually ask people. Maybe can you, can you tell us like a bit what are, what are the, what are the things that you, that you always have to say to people? Because I assume if you're mentoring two, three, four startups, you probably notice some usual mistakes, uh, things that people are always missing. I was forgetting. Uh, and that you kind of need to go every time and uh, and make them think about it. Uh, do you have some like quick questions that you'd like to say, two, three questions that people always need to, like when they start their business, uh, that people need to ask themselves? As oh yeah, need. of
2: course. <laughs> of course.
0: What What did you say? What are the, the top three that come to your mind?
2: Yeah. Okay. So um, the top one question that uh, every entrepreneur has to be able to answer uh, very, like without hesitation, what is the problem that you solve? Mm -hmm. And you would be surprised how many young entrepreneurs or even older, but inexperienced in entrepreneurship entrepreneurs. Uh, can't answer this question. Because they start with an idea that's pretty awesome idea, actually. But uh, it's what we call a solution looking for a problem. So they they think of a great technology and then looking for some sort of uh, problem that could be a good solution for. This is exactly what. How we were doing with our 3d printing marketplace startup that's why i'm speaking about this web experience mm-hmm. <laughs> so what problem do you actually solve and uh, mm-hmm. basically this um, yeah well i'm not going into the too much into the theory it, of it but uh, there are uh the in the concept of product market fit is the most important thing is to realize a uh,
0: product, uh, product market
2: fit. Okay. Product, yeah, product market fit.
0: Okay.
2: And uh, there are three levels without going too much into detail. There is the basic level, the problem solution fit, where you as an entrepreneur have identified an actual problem that is important enough for a big enough uh, audience. That would uh, they would be uh, willing to pay for their solution, and the majority of early stage startups or you know would be startups don't even hit this milestone. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, above this one is the product market fit to actually create something that uh, solves the problem in a way that is good enough for the audience. And well, product market fit is uh, is where you cannot make the product fast enough uh, because they are taking it out of your hands. Or you, if, when it's a software product, you can't uh, spin up servers or like virtual servers uh, fast enough because it's always overwhelmed because there are so many people want to use it. Well, this is uh, this is product market fit when you have found something that. Uh, Deeply resonates with your uh, with your target market, and well, there is the highest level is the business model fit, and um, where you actually can make money and make it a sustainable thing because the business model is viable and profitable. But uh, <laughs> uh, what? So yeah, these are, these are all the questions which I was uh, telling you about in uh, yeah. in a in a you know, telling about and not asking about. But these would be the questions, is like, what is the problem? What would be the kind of a, you know, solution to it? And how would you make money uh, using this uh, problem? Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, so solving this problem, using your proposed solution, how would you make money? And uh, so how do you satisfy, in theory, the three levels of fit? and uh, I see
0: so you so you first started the problem yes exactly always then, started then the always started the problem of course uh, it's a good engineering practice overall yeah, yeah. Then you go to the solution yes uh you figure out whether 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 there is a uh, can connection build a product uh, yes. that will fit the market and then you and then you say that for you the last step is to really think about the, the money-making potential of that
2: well this is these are all all connected but um if you have to
0: sympathize it, would you would, say money is the last step or like the business well, money goal? is
2: the well if you are in a startup business obviously your one of your most important goals is to make money obviously if you need, Oh really <laughs> No, but money is the byproduct of creating value, and uh, yeah. well, it's it's. I think Peter Thiel was the one who uh, formulated it extremely well. Peter Thiel was one of the co-founders of PayPal. Uh, mm-hmm. For those who don't know, uh, and he summarized it very well. It's like uh, problem solution fit and uh, product market fit is two first two steps you have to create value somehow for other people, create as much value as you can. And the business model of it is the the part where you capture some of that value. And uh, a good startup is scalable enough so that it creates an enormous amount of value. And even a fraction of that value makes you as the founder rich. But money and uh, success in the startup world is always always the, always the byproduct of solving a problem that is really important for a well-defined audience. Or at least you always have to start with a well-defined audience. Uh, I don't know if I answered the question. I think you did, yeah. it's okay. very.
0: I think it's a very interesting takeaway that, that people can think about these three points uh and uh it would be it would be nice for like our audience you definitely appreciate that that this there are very three precise things that you can think about whether you want to start a business uh and could send very really precise questions that you can that then can take you very far so yeah. uh, thank you thank you for that
2: yeah i would i would add uh a little bit uh of uh of the first step because uh, mm-hmm. that's a big uh, big obstacle for a lot of people how do you actually get to problem solution fit ah. and this is where uh, i actually the, the 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 method is extremely easy you have to talk to your potential customers so well let's assume you identify the market for which you assume that you have a, they have a problem, your best course of action without spending a cent on, on anything, on product development or marketing or hiring people and renting an office and uh, buying a company car, nothing. Just before spending any money, just talk to your potential customers as much as possible uh lots of people like do this online through questionnaires that's much better than nothing but uh, actually talking to human beings in a free form format where they can let them uh talk and uh, you can ask open ended questions that's the best 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 way to learn about uh, about what makes them tick What keeps them up at night, um, what makes them excited, um, and this is how you when you learn about your audience. Then you know what is actually bothering them, what is important for them, and then this is the road to problem-solution fit. You identify not certainly the most important problem, but a problem that is big enough and uh, well uh, defined enough so that a product that you can make could make a solution for that. And now is the first time that we actually have to or should think about product at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very important. And as you mentioned, you basically Went through this process yourself with yeah. some of the startups, <laughs> so you kind of <laughs> know what uh, what will work and what uh, might not work as well, which yeah. is uh, which is good, right? <laughs> and um, there was that was now about your current company, and how did you come up with wasify What was what was the research that you made that uh the problem is big enough and uh how are you confident that um that this is the right company for you to to launch
2: well it um i also kind of stumbled upon a need because uh yeah i uh, i'm lucky to have a large network due to best and all my uh, international experiences and i talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and a concurrent theme that came up again and again are the uh, trials of tribulations of non-technical founders is that uh, how hard it is for them to build a product okay that should they uh, look for a technical co-founder or should they hire a freelancer or should they uh, hire a development company and uh it's it's really hard for them because sometimes the companies or the freelancers they would hire uh have no idea about startups, have no idea about like lean product development or MVPs and these kind of uh things. And finding the technical co founder is basically very hard it's uh, it's really hard to find a technical co-founder for uh, for a um, like a pre pre-revenue and pre-investment startup it's extremely hard because well well uh, experienced and uh, good technical people like in the software industry yeah software engineers programmers they are very uh, sought after in the market and they can make a really good salary uh, when they are working for uh, a, com- uh, like you know, an established company. Yeah, that's for a big corporations. Quite, exactly, yeah. and that's why it's quite hard to basically make them join uh, a startup for only equity. And it's uh, it's a big challenge, and startup. And of course, there is the there is the step where your company grows as much when you, for example, raised a million dollars or something, which is in America, it's not that much. But uh, in Europe, it's uh, it's a sizable chunk of money. And then you can actually basically hire your technical co-founder, who is not not a co-founder at that point, but uh, an employee, a CTO employee. But how do you bridge that gap? What do you do um, if you have, like, you have uh, identified a, a problem. You have a proof of concept, or basically an MVP, and you manage to raise some investment, but you don't have a technical co-founder. Well, this is uh, the the need, the market need that uh, I am identified that these uh, non-technical non-technical founders. And I, sometimes I like calling them business-focused founders because why should you define someone based on what they are not, and why not uh, define them based on what they are? What they are? Rather business-focused founders.
1: <laughs> I like it actually. I really like it, and make makes a lot of sense because there are some theories that you should focus on your strengths. Oh yes, and Make exactly. them better.
2: Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, that's why obviously a lot of, there are lots of, um, lots of ways right now to, to get started for business focused founders. For example, there are lots of no code tools right now that they can build an MVP without writing a single line of code. I mean, software MVP, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, um, so That's what I mean, is that they have a lot of uh, means to actually get to the point to validate their product and raise a smaller investment. And from that money, they should make, like, a marketable product. And that's where uh, my company Wasify comes in, because we we help uh, the founders, like, basically take everything away from their shoulders that is connected to technology. So that's why our, uh, slogan comes from it's a technical co-founder as a service. Yeah. So it's not only like they hire a freelancer that does the programming, but we do everything that is technology related, like, okay, manage their server infrastructure and, uh, obviously develop the software and the hardware if need be, and uh, solve every challenge that comes up uh, that is regarding tech. Sounds
1: um, interesting. And I think that this is something that I heard before that there is such need. So I guess you're quite busy these days as well.
2: Yeah, actually we are on full capacity right now, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, I I believe we are creating a lot of uh, value for our clients, and uh, uh, I really uh, really hope that uh, we are going to be able to help a lot of lot more clients uh, in the future when we manage to scale. Well, me. <laughs> <laughs> As because our, uh, our approach is a basically a consultative mentor, uh, based, mentorship based approach towards, uh, mm-hmm. towards our clients. So if the clients need, um, they can basically ask us or me about not only technology, but in general about startups and business strategy and product development strategies and we know what has to be in an MVP, what is not important in an MVP. Um, So it's actually uh, a really comprehensive service that is, uh, well, I really, really work on that, that we would be the most known and the best at what we do in the world. Like there are lots of engineering uh, firms uh, in the world and software development firms in the world, but we aim to be the best value creators for that are specialized in startups in the world. Uh And based on uh, my previous analogy, obviously we want to capture a fraction of that huge amount of value and make money <laughs> of course
0: <laughs> so, so, I mean, and are you like are you so you're saying you're talking about yourself are, do you have uh,
2: you know employees these days or are you working alone we we have uh, the core team is uh, five people and uh, at this point we are working with contractors which are um, the number of who is always changing based on how many and what types of different uh, product we have, uh, we are working on right now at this point, we have like 20, uh, contractors working uh, on one project or another. So, uh, it always, uh, changes. But well, our vision is to have, uh, basically a delivery center, like, uh, some kind of a shared service center here in in Budapest or, or in this area, mm-hmm. and uh, and serve. I'm not saying the whole world from here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Conquer the world from from, no from way. Yeah, <laughs> I think there will be at least uh, x amount of people which would not sleep if you take over the world because <laughs> you need to work with uh, Australia and different times so. <laughs> They yeah, won't we be
2: have, happy. We, yeah, of course we, we have a like a plan, which is like a long term plan for that. But uh, that might be uh you know, that there might be another episode in one year from now. <laughs> oh okay. So,
0: let's and Okay, let's let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> let's hope, yeah. In one year you you come back to tell us how, how was the is going with it. Uh, I would
1: love to have this kind of a follow-up episode. We should do it as well. And yeah. maybe just just to conclude with one final question about uh, your entrepreneurship uh, life, and that is the obstacles. And I just wonder, what obstacles did you did you uh, kind of experience during your business? And the other, and kind of the fourth question would be: Do you think that the European market and uh, more specifically the European regulations are ready for startups? How how is this to register a company in europe and more specifically in hungary if you want to create a startup
2: okay so it's uh, well about obstacles so i get what you are asking is bureaucratic obstacles so but well i can talk about op- normal obstacles later but about bureaucratic obstacles uh, Europe and the world would be much better off if there were less bureaucracy, that's for sure. And I have uh, had experience firsthand what a lot of bureaucracy looks like, and Europe is nowhere near there. And it's in uh, South South America.
0: Really? So, yeah.
2: Argentina? In, uh, in Chile. I'm not Chile. surprised. I'm yeah. not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's crazy. It's like I mean uh, it's
0: it's not that it's not that South American bureaucracy is bad that it, it's very slow.
2: It's slow and uh, very bureaucratic bureaucracy. So yeah. imagine that a contract signed between two people is not 100% legally valid if you don't notarize it. Exactly. So you have to go to the notary <laughs> to notarize every document like for example you want to rent an apartment uh you have to notarize the the contract the the rent, uh, rent contract oh my god so that it can be legally uh enforceable but yeah. it's not that bad as it sounds because there is a notary on every corner but still <laughs> still it's bad um in COVID, is it because
1: it's a uh, people for Kind of people fake contracts so much, so the government decided that they need to have this kind of very drastic
2: step. I have no idea. It's uh, maybe they have the the notaries have a very strong lobby, so that they uh, they they can stay in business. I don't know. There that is, is also that.
0: There is also that. It's I mean I guess if it, if guess if we start talking about South American business business thing we can go about for hours and uh... yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah how is it in europe then how is it yeah
2: in so, so based on what i saw saw in start america south america hungary is uh is much better um well i had uh, a former i was registered in uh, london united kingdom um that was before brexit mm-hmm. uh, so So I don't know exactly how it is right now, but uh, the United Kingdom was extremely easy, even compared to Hungary. So it's actually not a coincidence that a lot of startups went there to uh, establish companies before the Brexit. I don't know about now. I believe Mm -hmm. uh, they are going to Estonia now, instead of of, uh, the UK. But um, so in in Europe I have only experience with these two countries I mean Hungary and uh and the UK but I I'm not saying that it's very bad in in terms of uh, bureaucracy. In Hungary it's for example in Hungary we have well at least until this year we have uh, the I believe the best and the most advantageous uh, how to say that sole trader type uh, tax system which is you register as a small, as a sole trader, like you register a business as an individual and you pay a very small amount of tax every month based on, uh, regardless of how much your uh, your income is. And the bureaucracy is extremely easy for that. Well, the company wants to complicate that kind of tax next year, but let's not go into that. So it, it was an extremely good way of uh, a Really, really great uh, tax system since two thousand sixteen. I think that was that was perfectly one of the best best uh, systems. And uh, well, you know, like creating a limited liability company, it's uh, still not that bad. But I don't. I'm not a you know. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer. And so if I have to like compare it, UK is is much more, you know, less bureaucratic, but Hungary mm-hmm. is still okay. Well, Hungary is not good for foreigners because everything has to be fine in Hungarian.
1: I see. So, so the foreigners need to use this method to learn Hungarian. Of course. <laughs> and then create the company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So, Banasz, I think that this is our last question. For you. And uh, I would really want to uh, thank you for being a guest in our podcast. You definitely bring a lot of value to all the listeners. And as well, one thing that uh, we can promise it to you is to invite you one year later because you want to hear what happened with your company, with your startups, and with your mentoring. And definitely we have a lot of more open topics about uh, budget traveling and other topics that uh, (laughs) you shared you said that it would take like ages so Uh,
0: we couldn't (laughs) cover we couldn't cover all the questions that you had so so yeah we had a lot of stops to talk more and maybe maybe to close uh, balas you want to let your contact how can people reach you out so they can uh, you know talk to you if they have some idea or they want to discuss some business opportunity uh, maybe they maybe want to. They have some ideas that they, they want to discuss with you. Or how can people reach out to you?
2: Okay, so my uh, main uh, communication channel for business is LinkedIn. I uh, post semi regularly on LinkedIn some stuff about startups, entrepreneurship, and uh, these kind of uh, things. And uh, I'm open to new connections. So if you are interested in. Uh, you know what I post. You could follow me on LinkedIn, but if you connect with me, I will uh, just write "best" into the into the note where you add me as a connection. So I'm really really open to uh, get to know uh, other besties or ex besties. Cool. And so basically on LinkedIn, I, I answer the messages quite quickly. And, well, you can you can see basically everything uh, from there.
0: This was the Beyond Best podcast, a project of the Best Alumni Network. If you like this thing, you can subscribe in your favorite podcast app, share with friends, and spread the word. If you have feedbacks, you can also contact us on beyond.best at bestalumni.net. To support our show, you can also become a member of the Best Alumni Network.